Do you recall applying for your first part-time job? Putting together your first resume? I remember being an undergraduate student and applying for one of my first part-time jobs and putting together my very first resume. I didn't have a whole lot of work experience, didn't have much to write down, but I came to that section at the end where I was supposed to type in some names of references. And I remember typing in the name of someone named Claire Hinchliffe, who was the president of a company called Electrol that dealt with light bulbs and light fixtures. We knew this person from our local church. The company wasn't especially big, but I remember looking down at his name on the piece of paper and seeing the word president after it and thinking, wow, I've got a president listed on my resume. This really enhances an otherwise really weak resume. (laughs) You know, uh, in the ancient world of the Bible, people didn't have resumes. Instead, they used genealogies. In a world, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, where family was everything, People valued their genealogies, the record of their ancestry, trying to establish their pedigree, and hopefully proving that they came from a racially pure bloodline. In this world, this kind of genealogy that that Matthew creates is of utmost importance. And when Matthew begins his gospel about Jesus now part of scripture, he begins with the genealogy, the ancestral record of Jesus. And in his day, people typically didn't include women in that record because it was a patriarchal world. The only time they would include women in their public family tree was if a woman or women enhanced the status of their family line. So if Matthew, as he does, goes against tradition and includes women in the family line of Jesus, we would expect for him to include women like Sarah or Rebecca or Leah or Rachel. That is the matriarchs of Israel. But does he do that? No. In addition to Mary, Matthew includes four women that are named And one of those women is named Tamar, whom Craig preached about last Sunday. We know that Tamar dressed up as a prostitute. She slept with her father-in-law Judah. As a result, became pregnant, bore twins, one of whom makes it into the ancestral record of Jesus as an ancestor of Jesus. Matthew also includes Rahab, whom we'll look at today. He also includes Ruth and Bathsheba. Bathsheba isn't actually named, but we know that he's talking about her in the way he describes the people around her. None of these women on the surface enhanced the prestige of Jesus' genealogy, of the record of his ancestry. In fact, they rather scandalize it. Listen to the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read from the genealogy. I'm not going to read the entire genealogy, just the first five verses. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was, yes, they were born, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. May the Spirit of God speak to us through this seemingly very ordinary prosaic text and reveal to us something of God's purpose. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Matthew names Rahab as one of the ancestors of Jesus. By the way, Rahab is also identified by name in the famous Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith chapter in the Bible. She's only one of two women that are actually named in Hebrews 11. There are other women, but they're unnamed. Let me give you the background or part of the background to Rahab's story. So the descendants of Abraham, more commonly known as the people of Israel, have been slaves in the land of Egypt. God raises up a leader among them named Moses to lead them out of this land where they have been slaves. God miraculously parts the Red Sea so that the Israelites are able to exit on dry ground. And then they enter into the desert, into the wilderness, where they wander for about 40 years. At the end of that time, Moses dies and Joshua succeeds him as the leader of the people of Israel. Joshua will lead them into the promised land of Canaan. And as he does so, they are poised to enter into the city of Jericho. But Joshua first dispatches two spies to scope out the land. And these two Israelite spies enter into the city of Jericho. And then they go into the house of a woman named Rahab, who according to Joshua chapter 2, is a prostitute. Apparently, these spies weren't especially careful as they entered her house because word gets back to the king that two Israelite spies have entered the house of Rahab. So the king dispatches the JPD, the Jericho Police Department, and two police officers knock on Rahab's door. She opens the door, and the police officers say a report has been made that two Israelite spies are being housed and, and, and they're in your home by you. And so bring them out, and we want to we interrogate them. Rahab pauses for a moment and says, well, they were here briefly, but they left. They, 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 they took off in that direction. If you, if you move quickly, you might catch up to them. Rahab is actually lying. I don't know what you think about that, but God apparently overlooks this. The, the police take off. And then Rahab goes to the place in her house where she's hiding the spies. She goes up to the roof, and under stalks of flax are hidden these two Israelite spies. And Rahab says to them, I know that your God has given you and your people our land. We heard about how God, your God, parted the Red Sea so that you were able to leave Egypt on dry ground, and, and we grew afraid. We heard about what your God did to the two kings east of the Jordan who opposed you, and our hearts sank. And then Rahab says, I know 
that your God is the true God of heaven above and the earth below, as I have spared you, so spare me, swear to me that you will show mercy to me and my family. And the spies say, our lives for your lives. You've been merciful to us. We will be merciful to you. Here's what you need to do. When we return with our people and are given your city, you must hang this red scarlet cord out of your window. And you and any household members, any members of your family who are gathered in your home will be spared. So they come to an agreement. The spies leave. They, they actually use another rope, uh, climb out of the window, go down the wall, and return to their people. Now let me ask this question. Why is it that Matthew includes Rahab in the, the genealogy, in the ancestral record of Jesus? After all, as we've mentioned, Rahab is a prostitute. She is a woman, which in a patriarchal world would have been seen as a negative. She's also a pagan Canaanite. So, she doesn't enhance, at least on first glance, Jesus' family tree. She is the ultimate outsider. But Matthew includes Rahab in the family tree of Jesus, not despite the fact that she is an outsider. It's precisely because she is an outsider. You see, Matthew, by including Rahab in the family line of Jesus wants to let us know that if we have ever felt like an outsider ourselves because of our race, ethnicity, cultural background, because of our gender, our sexual orientation, our socioeconomic background, because of an illness, a disease, a disability, because of something that we've done or haven't done, because of something our family has done or has not done, if we've ever felt like an outsider, Matthew is saying, we just might be an insider insofar as God is concerned. If we've ever written ourselves off or if anyone has ever written us off, God may just be writing us into his story, into his very family. And when we recognize that we were once an outsider insofar as God was concerned or in our experience of God, and then we are included. One of the signs that that's really happened is that we will experience this gratitude that will cause us to want to include others, to welcome others, even as we have been welcomed by God. I was appreciative that uh, last week Craig uh, shared a story that I love. I was actually at our UBC site last Sunday, and there were eight uh, people baptized there. But Craig last week mentioned the true story of a woman who was walking through the trails of Stanley Park. Uh, she was carrying some very heavy burdens and, and woes on her heart. And she bumps into this pimp, her pimp, and she begins to unload the woes and the grievances of her heart to him. She talks nonstop for about 10 or 15 minutes. She, she takes a breath and, and sort of naturally pauses. He interjects and says, I don't think I can help you, but have you thought about going to 10th Avenue Church? I love that story because, first of all, it was free advertising. I had to pay for advertising, so I love that it was free advertising. And second of all, even though I, I don't know this pimp personally, I infer from that recommendation that he believes that no matter what your background, 
Tenth will be a place of welcome for you, and it might even be a path of healing. We talk about being a place of welcome for all. That's not just rhetoric. That's something that we, with God's help, truly aspire to. Recently, I was talking to someone who helps to lead our refugee ministry as a volunteer. Uh, as you know, if you attended our AGM by Zoom last Sunday, uh, we have the privilege as a community of supporting in one way or another some 200 newcomers to Canada, 200 people that are seeking asylum in our land. And this, this person who volunteers with the refugee ministry was telling me that when she talks to people, people from Afghanistan or Syria or wherever they may be, they say something like this. When we interact with people from the government, uh, we sense that uh, they are doing their job, you know, from nine to five. They're fulfilling an obligation, which, which is good, but it, we realize it's their work and, and, and they're understandably boundaried. But when we interact with people from your church, we sense they're working on our behalf because of love. And we really sense a difference. And we're thankful. And I'm thankful that you, the people in this community, offer the welcome of God that God has shown to people across the ages, including to Rahab, because you have been welcomed by God. You've sensed his open arms. And so Matthew includes Rahab because she is an outsider who has been invited in, and he wants us to know the same can be true for us. Matthew also includes Rahab in the ancestral record of Jesus because Rahab's life is an example of how God can redeem everything. Rahab, as we've mentioned, has worked as a prostitute in Jericho. We don't know exactly how she got into the sex trade. We do know in modern times that people sometimes voluntarily enter into the sex trade, but in many cases, it's not a voluntary choice. They're trafficked into this line of work, or they're, they're forced at, at, at the threat of violence uh, if they don't enter this kind of work, or they're just in a completely financially desperate place. And so as a child, or as a woman, or as a man, they, they feel like they're compelled to sell their bodies tragically. We don't know exactly Rahab's backstory, but we can imagine that there was some kind of adversity in her life, some kind of pain and trauma and a shame that she carried that accompanied her entering and her carrying out her work in the sex trade. We do know that she, at some point, turns to the living God and isn't just metaphorically included in the family of God, but she literally marries one of God's sons, an Israelite named Solomon. We don't know much about him. We do know that they have a baby boy named Boaz, and we know something about what this boy grows into from the book of Ruth. We know that Boaz becomes a man of extraordinary integrity, courage, and generosity, that he just oozes strength and mercy. And we can make the inference that his mother, former prostitute, experienced in a deep way the grace and mercy of God, and so began to reflect that mercy and grace to other people, including to her son. And so her son Boaz would in turn reflect that mercy and grace to others, not the least of whom was Ruth. Part of what Rahab's story tells us is that our past doesn't necessarily need to predict our future. That even if we've had a difficult past, our future can be 
marked by the grace of God. My mother's own parents had a difficult marriage. On at least one occasion, her father, my grandfather, acted violently toward his wife, my mom's mom. He also had mistresses, he had affairs, and their bad marriage caused dysfunction in their family, as you can imagine. So my mom was impacted by that, but she came into a relationship with God, and as some of you know, walked a path of healing and became a wise and loving and gracious mother and wife and friend. And I want you to know that even if your background, your family background is marked by some kind of dysfunction, pain, even abuse, that does not necessarily need to predict your future. If you experience the grace of God, your future can be a story of grace. Earlier in the fall, I was in a small town in Alberta called Three Hills. Have any of you been to Three Hills by chance? Anyone at all? Okay, I don't see, I see, I think a hand, or maybe you're just scratching your ear. Um, in the first service, there were a few people who had actually gone to Three Hills. It is a such, a, there is a such a place. I'm just not making this up. It's a town of about 3,000 people. And um, I was speaking at a place called Prairie College, uh, which is a Christian school. And one day I'm walking across campus, and I, I had mentioned in one of my earlier talks that uh, I like to swim, and so someone's saying, I'm going to take you to, to a swimming pool nearby. So we're walking across campus, and, and, and my host stops and introduces me to someone. Uh, he says, uh, this is uh, Gord Allert. Uh, he heads up a prison ministry associated with our school. And, and I, I turned to Gordon and said, uh, that's really interesting. How did you get involved in this prison ministry? And Gord said, do you, do you have some time? And I thought, I can go swimming anytime. Uh, sure. And so he says, okay, let's walk over to my office. So we go to, to his office. I sit down. He sits in front of me and he says, you know how uh, some people when they're stressed out and they need to be picked up in some way, uh, they need some solace, they turn to alcohol or drugs or maybe gorge on food. I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And he says, well, that's not me. Uh, when I was stressed out, when I was really anxious, I would turn to shopping, buying nice things for a sense of comfort. I'd buy really expensive, um, fancy guitars, luxury cars. I once bought a gorgeous house overlooking the Bow River in Calgary. I was making good money in the company that I was working for, but I was far outspending my salary. So I decided that I would manipulate the accounts payable. And I set up a fake company, a bogus company, that would create fake invoices, and I would cash out those invoices and pocket the money, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars over time. I realized it was wrong, so I stopped doing it, and I just paused and thought, wow, I'm gonna get away with this. But then, I was arrested, led away by the police, it was humiliating, and sentenced to 18 months in prison. He said, my first night in my prison cell, I'm on the top bunk, and I'm just weeping. I'm crying, and I'm so thankful that my bunkmate below has the radio on loud so he can't hear me bawling my eyes out. And I am committing or actually recommitting my life to God. I'd been a churchgoer pretty much my whole life, but my heart wasn't into it. I really committed my life to God. And the next morning, I went out to the commons area and began reading a Bible. Began doing this each morning, and young men... Uh, would come around me and they would say, hey, Gord, what are you reading? And I'd say, I'd say, I'm reading the Bible. And they'd say, can you teach us the Bible? 
So I tell them the stories of David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba. And some of the young men would say, hey, look, I'm about to, to do, I think it's step two in my 12-step AA program. Can you help me connect with a higher power? And Gord would say, sure. And Gord said, I was old enough to be these guys' father. And a lot of them didn't have dads. A lot of them didn't have good dads, at least, complicated relationships with their fathers. And so they started calling me dad. They started calling me dad. I eventually um, got out of prison and I started working for an oil and gas company, paid off all my debts. And then I heard about how Prairie College was launching this ministry for prisoners that would enable them to take Bible school courses for free uh, while in prison. And I put out my hand and said, I'd like to be involved. And I became the, the leader, the director of this program. It's not the highest paying job I've ever had, but it's the best job I've ever had. It's the most meaningful. And, and God is taking the mess of Gord's past and making it his message. As my old professor Haddon Robinson used to say, he's growing roses from manure piles. Gord is an embodiment of the grace of God, how nothing is wasted, like Rahab. Recently, some of you would know, I was in Cambodia with a small team from 10th. On our first full morning there, we were at a place called Shalom Valley, which is a camp, an adventure camp for kids and adults. And it's the first Christian camp in the history of the nation built, thanks largely to donations that have come from people in this community. On our first full morning there, we're connecting with some of our ministry partners and leaders, and, and a guy named Pirom is in a circle of, of, of folks we're gathering with, and uh, Pirom is put on the spot and asked to share his story spontaneously. Pirom begins by saying, I was born in a very, very poor family. I was born a twin, which in Cambodia is considered bad luck or a curse. And so my mom sent my brother and me off to an orphanage. We actually have some footage of his story, so uh, why don't we show part of it now? My name is Pirom Nat, and I will tell you something about my story. I was born uh, in Batambong province, India, in 1984. I am a twin brother. During my childhood, I lived with a really hard situation. When I was three months old, my father passed away because of my cancer. And unfortunately, my mom believed in the fortune teller and then they, they thought that we are a bad luck baby and then kill my father. And then my mom is not happy about both of us. And they sent us to Afrinic Center. When I turned to eight years old, I remember I fell down from the house. I'm unconscious. I, I can't remember anything. Then I stay in the hospital for three months, and after three months, the doctors mentioned that um, I died already. They took me to the morgue. And then my hand started moving. The doctor say, oh, this, this kid is alive. Even though I, I didn't know who is God, 
I would say that it's the miracle that um, God saved me. So God is choosing me and calling me since I was a child. That is why I want to use my life to serve God, to help and to work and to change Cambodia through this generation. Every year I help organize the annual camp. We encourage the young people in the church to go and work alongside those kids who work alone. Those kids who are often vulnerable children, they just need somebody who are really understand about their situations, listen to them, pray for them, and work alongside them. You know, as I spent time with Pirom in, in Cambodia, several times he said, you know, I grew up in a very poor family, was sent to an orphanage, was beaten. I hated that at the time, but now I see how those painful experiences have helped produce compassion in my heart for the orphans of Cambodia, for the vulnerable children, and they have prepared me to, to serve them. Pirom now serves as the leader, the senior leader, the executive director of this camp called Shalom Valley, and God is using him in a powerful way to impact the lives of a generation of children. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So God is using the mess of Pirom's past, which was no fault of his own, and making it his message. He's also growing roses out of the manure of his past as well. He's an embodiment of the grace of God. As I close out this message, I want to just reflect for a moment once again on Rahab's turning to the one true God. So as I mentioned in, in, in Joshua chapter 2, when Rahab turns to the spy, she says, I know that your God has given you this land. We've heard that your God parted the Red Sea so you were able to leave Egypt on dry ground. I believe that your God is the true God of heaven above and the earth below. May you, may your God show mercy to me. And even though it's not a traditional sort of profession of faith, she is affirming her faith in the one true God. She's turning to the creator of the universe. And this must have been, at some level, really difficult for her because she would have been, by turning to the one true God, breaking from her pagan gods, whom everyone else in her world, her family and friends, were worshiping. She was breaking from the traditions of her culture. And for some of you here, you may believe in the existence of God, but it's difficult for you to really turn and fully commit to the one true God because if you do that, you feel like you're breaking away from your family or from the direction of your friends or people whose approval you crave. The prominent philosopher Thomas Nagel in his book, The Last Word, wrote these words. I want atheism to be true. I am uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't want to believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. 
I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. I am curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. There are, of course, emotional and psychological reasons for certain people to want to believe in God, but there are also emotional and psychological reasons, as is true for Thomas Nagel, for people not to want to believe in God, not to want to believe in some transcendent reality that may one day hold us accountable. And it may be that you believe in God but you're hesitant to really commit your life to God because you feel that it will put you out of step with family, maybe friends, people whose approval you value, that it will make you in some way an outsider to this world, and it actually will. You will be marching in some ways in a way that that, 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 that's to the beat of a different drummer, you'll become more countercultural. There is a cost to fully committing your life to God, but if you do that, you will also discover that you are an insider to the one true God of the universe. You're part of his family and that God will take every part of your life, including the mess of your past and make it your message. He will grow roses, something beautiful from the manure of your life. And he will take your wounds and transform them into your greatest glory. Let's pray. If you're here... It's a sign, it's one sign that you have been chosen by God and that you have been or are being invited into his family. And so if you believe that at some level, simply say, simply pray, Lord, thank you for choosing me and inviting me to join your family. And perhaps like Rahab, like Gord, like Perome, you would want to commit your life to God. Maybe you're sort of committed, but you're not fully committed. If you'd like, you can commit or recommit your life to God, even today. Say, God, take my life. Take the mess of my past, the dysfunction perhaps, and turn it into something truly beautiful that brings you glory, that does me good. Take all of my life and use it for your glorious purposes. Redeem my life, every part of it. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.